0: Welcome to the Chasing Capital Podcast, where we focus on notable VCs, operators, and founders in their 20s and 30s, giving insight and advice to university students. I'm quite excited to have Mike Giampappa as the third guest on the show today, investor at Bessemer, where he focuses on fintech and emerging consumer and enterprise tech and is involved in investments like KYC API company Alloy and NYDIG, a Bitcoin-related solutions provider for institutional investors. Previously, Mike was an investor at IVP working with portfolio companies like Coinbase and Masterclass and worked in banking and asset management at J.P. Morgan. Mike studied econ and was a varsity football player at Johns Hopkins and got his MBA at Harvard, where he helped run the blockchain club there. Let's get started. Okay, so just starting off, I was wondering how your switch from banking to venture came about and also if your investment philosophy did change once you made that move
1: yeah so maybe it'd be helpful just to take a step back and talk a little bit about like the path before banking because I think um, I started out of out of undergrad at JP Morgan asset management doing investing actually right out, right out of undergrad okay. um, I was mostly focused on public market investing in in large cap technology companies and mm-hmm. um, you know I realized I love technology and I loved investing but I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial and like closer to closer to entrepreneurs um and so I I started focusing more on on uh, you know private equity growth equity venture capital type firms and I didn't know anything about the industry really at the time and the more I spoke to people and the more I researched specific firms that I thought I'd be interested in potentially working at uh, a lot of a lot of the, the the folks I had been speaking with were from investment banks had investment banking experience were telling me that they recruited from investment banks and the other thing I noticed was they were all based in California and at the time I was I was living in New York yes. and so um, luckily I worked at JP Morgan and and had some connections over in the investment bank and a spot opened up in in our San Francisco office and so it was a really good way for me to get that experience and move out to California yeah. um and you know pretty quickly thereafter I, I I landed my first venture capital role at at IVP and um it, it was it was great it was exactly what I was looking for uh so that's a little bit of of the background um to your question on like my investing experience yeah it you you don't do investing in investment banking, which is kind of kind of uh, ironic. There's no investing as one of the sort of knocks with investment bankers. It's like yeah, you can work hard and you can um, you know do a lot of do a lot of diligence and you know how to build financial models, um, but are you a good investor? <laughs> you know and and, uh, and there seems to be a bit of a gap there. I I had that a little bit of that investing background before banking. And so that was a pretty powerful combination, I, I thought. Um, but yeah, like I've I've invested in, and, and obviously now at Bessemer, you know, I'm focused more on early stage investing and IVP was more of a growth stage mm-hmm. firm. So uh, the investing style has, my investing style has definitely evolved from like literally investing in the largest companies in the world. We, I was focused on Apple, for example, and like hardware and and Cisco and in the networking space and some semiconductors like Intel, like some of the biggest companies in the world to growth stage companies at IVP all the way to, you know, series A and even seed companies now at, at Bessemer. So your, your approach has to change along, along with that.
0: Yeah. Do you still think that that experience looking at kind of larger companies and also growth companies is helpful for a seed and series A investor?
1: I think it is. And it isn't like, you know, it's hard for me to say because i've invested in in public companies like apple and and cisco that i know you know it's it's challenging to to tie that back to investing in in an idea in a market uh with you know two founders for example um but but i do think it it provides broader context for like like the, the 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 process is somewhat similar, right? Mm. Like you're looking at a market, and and the macro backdrop, and then the industry vertical, and in, in particular, and how that's evolving, how that's growing, what are the underlying trends, what are the you know sort of competitive forces in that market, um, and then you get get to the company in particular, and you're thinking about you know the team and the product differentiation and what are the moats for that company versus everyone else? And, and so it's a very similar investment process yeah. um, philosophically, I think obviously where you spend more time and less time, depending on the stage matters quite a bit. Um, but I try to use the same process I used, uh, you know, investing in public companies, uh, you know, still, still when I think about making early stage investments today.
0: Yeah. That's funny though. I mean, is that, is it just a structural thing that there are a lot of like people go in investment banking first and then move over to VC? Cause I mean, as you said, like I would think that the actual direct investing experience is a lot more relevant, especially at the early stage, you're not really building models because these companies don't have you know, really yeah. much data or
1: financials. So. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think part of it is, there's, there's, there's a, there's a recruiting challenge. Like there's, you know, I had a great role at, at JP Morgan, um, in, in, in the investing group that I was in, but no one really knew what that was like. They, that wasn't a tried and true path. And so when I would tell people like what I was doing, they didn't really get it. They were like, wait, you're just out of undergrad. you you say you, you work on the buy side doing, working for a portfolio manager. Like they just like, didn't they didn't understand. It was, it would have been much easier for me to say, like I I was an investment banker, I was a consultant. And so I think a lot of it is um, making people feel comfortable with your background based on like the other resumes that they're seeing. So I think there's a little bit of that in there, um, which is sort of like a bug in the system, if you will. Right. It's not, not an efficient um, it's an inefficiency. Um, uh, So, yeah. Look, I, I think when you when people are thinking about trying to start a career in venture, venture is such a wide spectrum nowadays, from really really early stage venture to growth stage venture, which is um, you know extremely hot over over the past few years. Yeah. And there's different skill sets that are required to be really good at, at different parts of of that spectrum. But I think you know people are focused on can you um can you can you identify attractive companies and attractive trends can you diligence them can you some of that means modeling you know doing some models and unit economics and you know cohort curves and just doing some basic analysis yeah um to help guide the decision-making process and then it's okay well what do you pay for all of that like what's the right quote unquote right price um Based on the profile of, of the company and the industry and what's happening in the broader market. So, I think you learn some of that in investment banking. Um, you also definitely learn how to work hard. So, people, people tend to put value in in that experience, but it's yeah. definitely not a perfectly transferable uh, skill set by any means. Exactly. Do you think
0: being in a multi stage? firm like Bessemer is actually more helpful when, when trying to figure out what to pay for some of these super early stage companies, because you're able to kind of, you're able to get more data at the later stage and perhaps better project like the outcomes or the possible developments for that company.
1: It definitely is. You definitely learn. um, You have the ability to see companies over time and, you know, um, I learn every day from seeing companies at different stages and also different within different markets. Like there are some consumer companies that can be hundred billion dollar type companies in the public market someday. Like they just have that type of growth potential. Yeah. Um, you know, at IVP, I was fortunate enough to, to um, work on our investment in Coinbase, for example. And you know, at the time in early 2017, a lot of people at the firm or a lot of people in, in the broader market didn't even know like what crypto was, what Bitcoin was. And this is sort of right before the big 2017 run up in the market. And, you know, when 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 we had come to the investment committee and we were like, hey, we want to invest a lot of money at this price. People didn't understand like what that, like why. Um, but, you know, like I think Coinbase is going to be a public company sometime this year, and we'll see what it trades out in the public markets. But these types of consumer companies can, can be valued at immense valuations, like far beyond what other companies, you know, whether it's B2B infrastructure companies. And there's still some of those companies can be, obviously, yeah. worth 10 billions or hundreds of billions of dollars. But I just think you get a broader, you know, having a broader aperture, whether it's stage, or whether it's the types of companies you're looking at, both consumer and enterprise gives you a better sense for what valuations are justifiable. Um, and you can track companies over time. And, uh, you know, if you miss, if you miss at the seed or the series a, um, sometimes it's harder sort of mentally to invest at the series B because you've, you've, you've passed, or you missed on the first two rounds at much lower valuations, yeah. but, it typically means that there's something really special going on and and that um you know it's a sunk cost and maybe you should not dwell too much on that. Yeah.
0: that makes a lot of sense. Do you think those like much higher potential valuations for a consumer is just because there is so much more of this kind of like intangible, I guess you could call it like goodwill or whatever, or brand or something like that that you might not have for for more of these like like B2B companies where it's very easy to like to look in and analyze, basically like basically like look at their PL and then figure out
1: their valuation from there? Maybe. Um, I think it's, I think it's more about just like the, the size of the market opportunity. And, you know, if you can get a million customers to pay you, uh, you know, X dollars a month, you can build a really, really big subscription software business or like a really big business. And, you're only tapping into like a very small percentage of the U.S. population. Never mind the global population. So you know, if you can scale a business to 10 million users, or geez, 50 million or 100 million users, yeah. like it doesn't take that. You don't need to extract that much value out of each user in order to build a really, really big business. So I think it's, I think that's that's one piece of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think some of the consumer businesses within the financial services world, which is where I spend most of my time, um, have innovated on on business models, you yeah. know, more so than than B two B SaaS companies, right? Like when you look at Robinhood's business model, um, you know, offering free trading and monetizing through order flow was was fairly novel right like yeah. and it was very disruptive um to the entire industry and obviously you know you can look at that and say oh well the incumbents will fight back but it took them a long time for the incumbents to fight back um and it was one of those like you know your margin is my opportunity type of thing so they've really innovated on that and it, it has been very disruptive and you know people people talk about like moats in investing and like what's what's the moat for xyz company and i think i've gotten hung up in the past on looking at some of these companies and saying oh but there is no moat like you know someone can just copy that but i i think i think offering a free product is a is a is a very big moat yeah. and like Robinhood's offering it's not a cheaper alternative it's a free alternative <laughs> you know free free in, in air quotes and um it just it just makes the switching costs seem nonsensical. It's like why would I switch off of something that I enjoy and I'm getting it for free? Um, so anyway, it's kind of made me rethink some of some of my um, some of my previous thoughts on like what what serves to be enduring moats and for some of these consumer businesses. Yeah. And I'm not saying Strava is a perfect example, but but it's 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 an example that's just been topical in the markets over the last few weeks. Yeah.
0: That's really interesting. Do you think that, that that this business model innovation is almost a necessary prerequisite to it to be one of these breakout consumer companies that can actually differentiate itself?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, I th- look, I think fundamentally like product innovation and business model innovation, if you can get one of those things, you have the opportunity to build a really big business. If you can get both of those things, um, it could be, it could be a, you know, category defining type of business. So, um, look in financial services, there are just, the bar is really low in terms of competition. I feel like, um, a lot of the incumbent financial products are very expensive. They're very clunky. Um, and so if you can innovate on product, which is is challenging to do, but again, the the bar it's but it's becoming easier. Mm-hmm. And if you can innovate on the business model side, like you can be very very disruptive. And a lot of the incumbents, not just in the financial services world, but but more broadly, are slow to react. You know, um, and so that 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 opens up a, a, a fairly big opportunity for uh, for disruptors. Yeah.
0: And I was just curious, like what got you in like interested in basically into the crypto space in the first place? And then also, how do you kind of see Bessemer's and maybe other other VCs role in the space going forwards?
1: Yeah. um, I've been following the space for, you know, quite a few a few years now. And I met Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase in early 2017. Uh, And it was one of those meetings where I felt like I was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And I just knew like the rest of, I was just fascinated. And when you think about the growth that that company has had in that year, you know, it was the fastest growing company I had ever seen full stop. Like it was just amazing. And um, you know, I just get fascinated when you see that type of hyper growth and, it became obsessed with, obsessed with just learning about what was driving that growth, how sustainable was it? Whether I thought, you know, Bitcoin and other crypto assets were going to be a new asset class in and of themselves, and I think we're starting to see that play out. Um, you know, I think the the Bitcoin digital store of value, digital gold thesis has has held together over the years. Um, and we're starting really to see institutions flow into the space. And this rally has been the first institutional led rally in the crypto markets, um, you know, since ever. Uh, So, you know, I'm really interested in investing in more infrastructure to help the institutionalization of crypto, whether that's you know, on the trading side or, you know, uh, settlement, custody, lending and borrowing derivatives. Like there's, there's, all, there's all of these aspects um, that need to still be built out in order to make it a fully functioning institutional asset class. And um, that's a pretty interesting investment um, kind of area that I'm, I'm particularly focused on. Um, but yeah, like to, to the second part of your question, you know, a lot of a lot of um, established generalist venture funds have been cautious on crypto, and I think you know Bessemer has been following the space for a long time, and we've made several investments, uh, most notably in in a company uh, called Nidig, uh, which is squarely on that the roadmap that I kind of discussed before about you know mm-hmm. institutional the institutionalization of Bitcoin. And uh, we've made others that that we haven't announced um, as well, but there's a lot more that we're focused on, and we hope to make a lot more investments in this space going forward. Um, um, there's real innovation happening there, so uh, you know we're it's an area that we're really focused on.
0: Yeah, and how do you look at how do you look at essentially buying let's say buying tokens for a particular protocol or company as opposed to more traditional investments and buying actual equity in that company. I mean, and also maybe a mixture of both. Like there's some, I've seen some examples, I think like Filecoin where Andreessen kind of did a mixture of both, I believe.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm conflicted on this. Um, I don't think I'm, I'm particularly well qualified me as a person to like evaluate, uh, the, the governance, the economics behind various tokens and like really be able to diligence that, understand the security of those tokens. Like I'm, I don't have the, the expertise to, to do some of that analysis. Um, you know, I've been mostly focused on investing in businesses, uh, in owning equity, that's yeah. not to say that you know that's 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 the only the only investment strategy um, that will be successful. You know, I, I I definitely think some of these sort of token driven marketplaces, um, for example, are fascinating. And I don't know, like I don't know how to invest in those other yeah. than buying the tokens. And so, like you know, when I say I'm conflicted, like maybe maybe. Maybe you know bessemer and and other firms will focus more on on that over time um, but our main thesis has really been built around Bitcoin to date,
0: okay.
1: and that becoming its own its own store value and and um, an asset class. so yes, our thesis can definitely expand beyond that and uh, could incorporate more more token investments but um we haven't we haven't done that really to date
0: yeah yeah and that makes yeah, that makes a lot of sense i think that's yeah, super interesting kind of just shifting back to college as given your purview obviously like interacting with a lot of entrepreneurs and companies what do you think is a typical piece of advice that's usually given to college students who let's say they want to be a founder or just get involved in the tech ecosystem that you that you think might be kind of misaligned or or just disagree with
1: hmm you know, I'm I I, I find like I know th- this is another tough one because uh, I think a lot of people when they're looking to join a company, they 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 want to work on something that they're really interested in a problem that they're really interested in, um, and and that's great. I think there's other people who go out there and say. I want to join like the the best like I want I want to I want to join the the fastest growing company a company that can be the next Uber or Coinbase yeah, and um you know the those people are focused more on being on the right you know the right ship rather than like what seat they're on and like you know did they get the right title uh did they get the right equity package that kind of stuff, and so when I talk to a lot of my under my undergrad classmates or my business school classmates, it seems like a lot of people are focused on, you know, the title, the compensation, um, you know, the role, rather than focus on just joining like the very best company. and And I feel like the latter. I feel like all the other stuff will take care of itself if you if you get the company right, and. It's very very hard to do. I spend I spend all day every day trying to find those companies, yeah. um, and I I just I just you know recommend if you're looking to join or start a company, really lean on your friends and your network who are in the venture capital ecosystem um, to tell you what they think about. And not to say that VCs or I like know you know have a crystal ball by any stretch of the imagination, but. Um, we 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 look at these spaces and these companies all the time, and have a generally a pretty good view on which companies are doing well, which companies are not, and um, and also VCs, you know, like earn earn brownie points for forwarding and 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 connecting, uh, you know, really high quality prospects and people who want to join some of their teams. Recruiting's the number one challenge in startups. Getting people to join your company at an early stage, uh, when most people in the world don't know what you do or you don't have a brand, and a lot of that comes through, you know, amazing recruiting talent and and hard work from from the founders and 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 the early employees, and also through the, their investors. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, I I think if I was if I was joining, I would be trying to find, you know, obviously where those circles overlap a problem that I want to work on, but also like really focused on joining the right company at the right stage. Yeah.
0: No, I think that's, that's great advice. Well, yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast.